Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Dr. Eli Karam back with you on the AAMFT podcast, a topic today that either brings great relief or great anxiety, depending what side of the spectrum you fall on. It's relief if you've already passed it. It's anxiety if you're waiting to take it. I'm talking about the professional licensure exam that leads to becoming a licensed marriage and family therapist. Today, we're going to talk all about that, how to prepare what you should do, what you shouldn't do, when to take it. Who better than talk about this topic today than two experts, uh, a great duo, Jamie Goff and Sarah Blakesley Salk. Jamie, with over 15 years uh, career in higher education, uh, has a PhD in couple and family therapy from Michigan State and a certificate in executive coaching from Southern Methodist University. She has significant experience in the needs and assessments, program and curriculum development, strategic planning, instructional design, and program evaluation. Sarah Blakesley Salkill is the program director at Abilene Christian University's online master's in marriage and family therapy program. She's also the assistant dean of graduate studies. Sarah got her master's from ACU and her doctorate in MFT from Texas Tech. Please welcome to the show. Jamie and Sarah. Okay, Sarah and Jamie, welcome to the AAMFT podcast. This is one of our most requested topics by, especially from our therapist in training and professionally younger listeners of the podcast. So we're talking all about the MFT national exam and preparing for it. So the first question is always, how did you guys get interested in, uh, well, the profession in general, but also specifically helping students, you guys are both educators, how did you get interested in helping young MFTs prepare for the national licensure exam? Yeah, thanks, Eli. Um, the story <laughs> the story of our interest in uh, preparing students for the licensure exam, it goes back about a decade. And <laughs> because it goes back that far, it's difficult for me to remember the exact year. It was either 2008 or 2009. When the Texas, what we are now calling the division, reached out to Jamie and asked if they would, if she would um, put together something for students in Texas, she reached out to me uh, as we knew each other from um, my master's program. And we collaborated on developing the very first workshop. Um, it was it was a lot of work, but it was also a lot of fun um, being together and also working together. And we made sure from the very beginning to include evaluations because, (laughs) you know, me being fresh out of my PhD and and Jamie having been out for a while, we're always interested in gathering the data and figuring out what works uh, and what's helpful for students. So we also did some evaluations and they were they were really positive. And, you know, this was our first time doing it. So we, we really weren't sure what to expect. But 
Uh, they were positive. They were overwhelmingly positive and the participants seemed to benefit from what we had provided. If I'm recalling correctly, that first time that we, um, did a workshop, we had some, we had some students from Texas, but we also had uh, at least a couple that had, um, that were from out of state or that had received their training in a different state that, you know, had recently moved to Texas. And we also did have some that very first time that had not been successful uh, in passing the exam. So it, it was a good mix. I, I say that um, to say that sometimes it's students that are in their programs that are taking our workshops, but other times it's those that have been out for a little while and, you know, different states have different regulations on when you sit for the exam. And, and so it was a nice mix um, of participants that, that first time around. So after the first couple of workshops, um, in either 2010 or 2011, that's when Jamie and I had, had made the decision that we wanted to sort of formalize the process. And that's when we decided to form our own company and, and provide the workshop. I thank you, um, Sarah, for kind of offering that bit of uh, history, I guess, of how we got started with all this. And I, you know, I would just echo what, uh, what Sarah shared. I mean, for us, I mean, obviously we were, Sarah was finishing up her um, her PhD, and I had been a faculty member for a number of years. And you know, taking the, the licensing exam is anxiety provoking for uh, for students, and our own students were anxious about it. And um, so they would come to at us and ask for you know insight and, and tips and what they you know how they should study and what materials they should should use to study. And so I think part of it too is just. Been our desire to you know contribute to the expansion of our profession by providing uh, students with some good resources to prepare themselves uh, for for the exam and being able to uh, you know to be licensed and you know since we started you know I think again ten years ago so way back in two thousand eight or, or two thousand nine you know we've since expanded after we you know formed our business from providing only in-person live workshops to also doing virtual workshops. Uh, we offer those uh, a couple of times a year and uh, we've developed some other study materials as well. And we're in the process of developing some new materials right now, uh, like um, an online practice exam uh, that students can take. We always give them practice exams in our workshops, but um, an online practice exam, a glossary and you know other study materials that we're putting together, videos, uh, that kind of offer a review of the different models and, and theories in the field, uh, et cetera. So it's, you know, it's, it's been a lot of fun and this is kind of a side hustle, <laughs> um, for Sarah and I. So we have lots of ideas and obviously, uh, we don't always get to follow them through to fruition in terms of what we want to provide to, you know, students and others who are planning to take the exam. But, um, but right, yeah, so we really enjoy it. What we'll talk about today then is, again, built on uh, listening to you all, not only 10 years of doing this and staying current with the field, but also taking feedback from your participants that have been in, uh, you know, that have gone through the training. So I think the first question, because MFTs in general, many times, especially in the master's level, pick the profession because they are people-centered, uh, a lot of, you know, the ability to be a therapist, uh, to be empathic, to reactive, necessarily 
isn't measured by the exam. And I think many MFTs just have test exam phobia in general, um, even in their courses. Some of their courses, they would rather write reflection papers or even show their work clinically than take a test. So in, in general, what do you think are the biggest fears and concerns surrounding the MFT licensure exam? Jamie mentioned this earlier, but I do think it's a general sense of test anxiety. Um, and so I, I think of that in two ways. The student may have just a, a kind of a global sense of, of anxiety around um, something that has this much weight. But then secondly, they, they also, you know, they, they hear the stories <laughs> of the cohorts that go before them. And, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a rigorous and difficult test. And sometimes I dare say even a bit tricky. And so I think that also contributes to a general unease about level of preparedness. Um, and it's a bit different than what they've been doing in their graduate work where they, you know, maybe go to class or maybe they do an online module um, and they are taking their, their tests or their evaluations uh, in a, in a really different way than going to a testing center and sitting down and logging in. And it's just, it's, it seems a bit more formal. And I think that um, contributes to, to the overall anxiety. I do think that, um, what we've heard from students during the workshops and, and then after in the evaluations is feeling a bit underprepared for certain content areas of the exam. And this is really student specific. So some, you know, really need to work on their ethics. <laughs> Others um, may not have had a lot of content in their program about crisis and trauma. And, and, and the list goes on and on in terms of the domains that are covered. And so those are the things that, that sort of pop up to me that, uh, and especially for students that have taken the exam uh, and not been successful. You know, they, they come to the workshop and they, they have their scores for the, the various domains and they recognize, you know, treatment planning is my weakness. And so I'm really looking, you know, in the workshop to, to strengthen those particular um, areas. And I, you know, I would uh, agree with what Sarah's mentioned. And I, I think, um, you know, a, a point she made about the ways in which we educate students in our MFT programs. I, I would imagine, I, I don't hear a lot of students who are, who are talking about the multiple choice exams that they take in their graduate programs, right? So it's just not generally how, how they're trained and evaluated. If they're taking exams in their program, you know, they're generally, um, probably writing, writing essays to respond to exams where they're able to really provide you know, kind of their, the context behind their thoughts and what they're, you know, how they're responding to the question. And on the licensing exam, it is a multiple choice uh, exam. And for some students, it's been a long time since they've had to take that type of exam. Um, and so, and, and there are different types of questions. And so um, that, it, and they forget some of the tricks associated with taking uh, multiple multiple choice exams, um, so yeah, just that that general test anxiety can be um, uh, pretty difficult for students. And, and we do have students who come to our workshops who have taken the exam and not been successful. And what we hear a lot from them is, "I missed it by one or two points," um, and and so that that seems to happen on a regular basis. And I think just adds to the anxiety. Like I was so close, and I, you know, I I didn't make it. Where did I, you know, where did I go wrong? Um, so, 
Um, and, and like Sarah mentioned, it's a it's a difficult exam. Um, you know, most states I think now allow students to take it, you know, immediately after they graduate from uh, from their programs, or maybe even right before they graduate from their programs. But according to the AMFTRB, it's a practice based exam that requires clinical judgment. Um, and so it's designed in that way. It's not designed quite as much as a knowledge-based exam. And so we try, yeah, uh, well, and I was just going to say, we try to talk to, to you know people who come to our workshops about that, that think about this in terms of making clinical judgments about how you're going to work with, you know, this family system described in this vignette uh, that you're given. Um, so... So these are some of the top questions you get. You bring up uh, some, I think a lot of, that goes with this anxiety is a lot of misinformation. The first one, you mentioned AA or AMFTRB. So a lot of times uh, therapists in training or pre-licensed professionals think AAMFT, this is the AAMFT podcast, but makes up the exam. So first of all, uh, educate our listeners who exactly makes up the exam and how a passing score is determined year to year? Yeah, so the exam is developed by um, the the AMFTRB, which is the Association for Marriage and Family Therapy Regulatory Boards. And so uh, AMFTRB is uh, essentially like the professional organization for all of the licensing boards. Uh, throughout throughout the country, and uh, the exam is you know created by uh, a, a group of people um, who are identified you know experts in the field who come together and, and work together to develop uh, the questions for the exam. Um, and so you know most of whom are you know they're made up of faculty and, and clinicians um, who are considered. Uh, to be experts in, in some way or another. Uh, and so they, they work together as a group to develop uh, the questions for the exam. So I think that is, Eli, like you mentioned, a common misconception that this exam is developed by AAMFT, and, uh, and it's not. Um, the AMFTRB has a different mission uh, than AAMFT, uh, and the AMFTRB's mission is primarily about the public uh, and protecting the public. And so part of the process of taking the exam is... Um, you know, making sure that those who become licensed are, you know, fully prepared uh, to work with the public and to do so in a clinically sound and ethical manner. And so that's really the mission of AMFTRB is to serve the public, protect the public, uh, while obviously the mission of AAMFT is to advance the profession. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make. And those things can get a bit murky at times, I think, for people who, who may not understand where all those boundaries lie. And how do we decide what is a passing score? Yeah, that is a, uh, that's a common question. And you know, it varies. <laughs> um, if you, there used to be kind of a misconception, um, or, you know, uh, I, I guess some uh, an urban legend or an urban myth or, or however you want to refer to it, but there used to be like this idea that the um, the exam was weighted or curved uh, essentially, so that um, you know whenever you were taking the exam, you were kind of like competing against others who were taking the exam in the same testing window as you, and it was like, well, you know, I hope I take the exam at the same time as a bunch of other people who don't know what they're talking about or who aren't well prepared, right? <laughs> Um, but that's not actually the case. It's not curved um, at all in, in any way. And the score for each, the passing score for each exam is different uh, depending on the specific questions because, you know, 
the three of us could be taking the exam at the very same time at the very same testing center, but we're not going to have the exact same exam. We'll, we'll have different questions. So the questions are pulled from a bank of questions. Um, and so the, your passing score is, you know, dependent on the questions you get, the difficulty um, of the questions that, that you receive. So each one is a little different, which is why sometimes students get frustrated or, you know, when they, you know, fail and the passing score, you know, that time was, I don't know, like 72, let's say, I'm just throwing something out there. Um, and then they take it again and, you know, maybe they fail and they actually got like a 72, but the passing score was a 73. Um, and that's because the passing score depends on the actual questions you get in the exam that you're taking. And you can read more about that on AMFTRB's website. Um, about exactly how um, the exam is scored. And we always encourage students to go to the website, read as much as you can uh, about the exam before you take it. Sarah, I don't, did you have anything to add about that? I, I totally agree with what you said. Um, the other misconception or misperception that, that we've heard is about answering questions uh, and that by answering a question incorrectly, that it counts against you. And so we always encourage um, our participants to work diligently and uh, and almost quickly through the exam. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, I think. But um, to, to make sure that they have laid eyes on every single question, every uh, the questions, um, the exam has 200 items, to lay eyes on every question and give themselves every opportunity to answer because wrong answers don't count against you. Um, they are, they're just, they're just wrong. And so it's always better to have laid eyes on a question. And if, you know, time is running short to at least make a guess, because that just significantly improves the chances of getting it right. Wonderful. Now you also brought up both of you, something that I think is, is very interesting and students debate, uh, what I'm about to say in the sense that, uh, I entered the field, I took the exam about 15 years ago and the three of us have all been in the field approximately the same amount of time. And when I took it, there was no provisional license. So you had to accumulate all of your postgraduate clinical hours and supervision hours. And the test would literally be the last thing you took before you became fully licensed. So it would be a two to five year journey for most um, MFTs in training. Now with uh, almost every state having a provisional license, you can take the test very early after you graduate. So there is a debate. Uh, should I take the test uh, very soon after I graduate or should I wait so I experience a couple years under my belt as I'm about to become licensed. And I think um, young therapists struggle with that a lot. So what are your all's thoughts on when to take the test before we talk about how to prepare for the test? Yeah. So, yeah, you're right, Eli. That is a that is a question we get a lot. Um, I'm not sure where my bias comes from. I don't know if it's just working closely with students um, for so many years. But I do, and, and also maybe knowing myself, I do encourage um, students in my particular program to take it as close to graduation or, or ending their master's level education as possible. I think the content is fresher. It's top of mind. 
Um, they, they've been in the textbooks. They may have even just been through, you know, some sort of comprehensive exam or a capstone process. So it's, it's all right there making sense to them. And just in knowing myself and, and knowing and talking with students, you know, that, that knowledge tends to fall off <laughs> when, when we're not in the classroom daily and we're not in the textbooks daily. And so I, I have, I have sort of pushed my students, don't delay, do it, do it as soon as you, you know, financially can, uh, get the funds together, um, do it as quickly as you can. Jamie may have something different to say about that. Yeah, I think generally I, I agree with Sarah's perspective. I, you know, as, um, cause we've had, we've had people in both of those situations in our workshops and, you know, many times in the workshop we have where we have people who have been, you know, out um, earning their post-graduation hours for a number of years, maybe, Eli, like you mentioned, maybe even like up to five years, and they're coming back in. And depending on the setting where they've been practicing, you know, they may not have, <laughs> you know, thought about, I don't know, narrative uh, therapy in, in five years um, or you know, there might be a new kind of evidence-based, um, you know, model or, or something that's come onto the scene that they aren't familiar with. Um, and so um, it, it seems like those um, individuals who are taking the exam tend to be in our workshops a bit more anxious about it and feel like they're behind on the content uh, area of that and tend to um, you know, ask the most questions and, you know, kind of have looks of fear, <laughs> you know, when we engage a, a content area that they don't remember or maybe weren't exposed to because it was a while ago that they were in their master's program. I will say that kind of the official, you know, the AMFTRB would probably disagree with us, uh, with both Sarah and I on this question. Um, I, because they do say that the exam is designed to be um, about clinical practice and based on clinical judgment, I think their position would be that um, it's better for students to wait, um, you know, until they have more clinical hours under their belt. Um, unfortunately, you know, I wish we had access. I would love to have access to, to data um, on, uh, you know, whether who's more successful, right? Um, are, is it the students who are brand, brand new graduates or just recent, you know, or just about to graduate, or is it those who are taking the exam a little bit later on? And that um, I'm that I just haven't found a place where that data is publicly available. So, and you know, I don't know if it's out there, but uh, that would certainly help answer the question. Um, but right now, we're just kind of having to respond based on our own kind of experience uh, of providing exam preparation and working with our own students. It's reaffirming to hear you both say that because as an educator and someone that teaches a capstone course and pre another course that prepares students for what they do uh, need to do in order to obtain the LMFT status, I think it does make a lot of sense to take it while it is fresh. And it is a practice-based exam, but in theory, they've had two to three years of practice by that point anyway. And if their training is good and supervision is good, it's, um, it, it, I believe it really benefits them to take it while they can. So we're, even though a, a MFTRB might disagree, I think, uh, from a training and education perspective, the three of us would say sooner than later, as long as you're prepared. That would be my caveat. So that's right. what we should talk about now. Yes, um, exactly. Used right. to be, uh, I remember one of my mentors said, if you, 
if you read at the time, and now we have many different, and I won't single any one person out currently, I'm many good text and, and training books out there that uh, co-empty programs use, but uh, back when I would prepare, I think it was the third edition of Nichols and Schwartz, which was uh, the <laughs> most common, you're laughing because everybody's probably seen yes. a version of that. Now it's Nichols and Davis, but but I was told if you review your notes and if you read that, Everything is in there that you need, um, and you don't really need anything else. But yet there are many third-party, uh, as you all run, you know, your, as you said, your side gig that prepares people expertly. So I think a lot of uh, therapists in training deciding not only when, but how do I prepare and how do I know what I'm getting as quality as far as uh, extra materials and do I even need extra materials? And back when, uh, again, when we were doing this, there was really only one extra material out there, which was the big green book. And those of you that, that know uh, what I'm referring to, which was um, kind of the gold standard in helping you prepare. But I am curious on your thoughts uh, on what you actually need to do to prepare and how do you judge whether a third-party product is hype or actually helpful? Mm-hmm. I, I'll start um, and I'll answer the question of how to prepare. And this, we, we, may, we may take this in sort of a tiered approach because the first thing um, I would suggest, and, and we tell our participants after they, you know, have received their letter of approval or whatever they need from their program, uh, if they're still a student, is to go to the AMFTRB and look at the document that contains the knowledge statements. And this is um, a document that, in essence, will let the students know what they should be prepared to encounter on the exam, that what the content may be. So I'm even, I'm looking at the document now, and I'm recognizing as a master's student, if I'm looking through, and the current iteration um, has 75 knowledge statements, I'm looking through and I'm, I'm noticing there are a couple of things right off the top that I remember touching on, um, but certainly never spent more than, you know, a, a discussion in class about it, or I did not write a formal paper, you know, or a PowerPoint presentation or something like that over this particular topic. So my advice would be read this list over and identify the gaps in, in training and education, because as we all know, the, we only have a certain amount of time in our programs <laughs> to convey, you know, the knowledge that we need to. And some things inevitably either get missed or get touched on, um, you know, more heavily than others. So if students will go through and recognize where the gaps are or where they may not feel as confident or comfortable, that would then lead them into um, the market if they wanted to purchase something or lead them back into the library if they want to, to research what uh, materials they would need to help them in that particular area. Um, so let me stop there and see if maybe Jamie would add anything different before I talk about third party. Yeah, no, Sarah, I think that's a fantastic idea. Um, and, and some students who or individuals who come to our, our workshops, they haven't even looked at the AMFTRB website or downloaded the exam handbook. Um, and so that's one of the first things we tell them to do. You have to take time to read that exam handbook and Sarah, I think that's, you know, that's not something that 
um, we've specifically talked about, but that's an excellent suggestion to look through those um, content statements and, you know, maybe just highlight the ones where you're like, yeah, you know, I don't know much about that. Um, you know, Eli, your question about like, do you need additional materials, like third party materials? I mean, I think that there are a lot of you know textbooks like you've mentioned in our field that are really helpful and kind of distill the content. Um, of course, when you have, you know, it, you know, when you're trying to study for an exam, it's difficult to go back and read all of the kind of primary sources for every model and, and theory. You just probably don't have time for that. And so there are those textbooks that do a good job of distilling the information. And you mentioned mentioned, you know, Nichols and Schwartz and now Nichols and Davis. And there are some other textbooks that most of our programs use that I often will recommend to students if they're like, you know, I just can't really afford to buy third party, um, you know, exam prep materials. Um, I often recommend, um, um, you know, uh, Gerhardt and Tuttle, the, the um, treatment planning, um, the, the theory-based treatment planning, because that just summarizes everything um, in a really succinct type of way. And I also um, will often recommend uh, the practice of family therapy by Suzanne Midori Hanna, simply because it does take a little bit more of a um, kind of meta-theoretical perspective. And so not all of the questions on the exam are based on one specific model or, or theory. Sometimes you need to be able to take that step back and think about it more systemically in a general way. Um, and so that, um, you know, that book can be helpful for that, I think. So those are some other resources that I will say you probably already have this in your library as a student. So go to that first. And, you know, if you need more, um, you know, if you need another source that, you know, distills and summarizes things a bit more for you, you can do that. And I also tell students, do not sell your books. <laughs> You know, keep them until after you right. at least until after you have taken the exam. Do not sell sell your books because there are some great study resources that you have already purchased, um, and so just hang on to them. <laughs> Even if you're like, man, I could really use the money from selling this book from you know from one semester to the next. And great tips in there. Uh, both of you are really experts at kind of providing online education as well. So also the format, things are delivered. You know, there's something about reading a book, another thing about taking a practice test. I think we can all agree. I'll ask you all for tips in a little while. Those are important things. But what do you think about some of these third parties are offering kind of um, online lectures and for some students that, you know, they can read, but also auditory. That's how they really process and master mm -hmm. concepts. So what do you think about other methods of kind of delivery of exam prep materials, primarily kind of online delivery and and also face-to-face -face workshops, which you all obviously do on your own, and AMFT uh, uses you a lot to also provide the same service. So I'm curious what you think about alternate methods of kind of reviewing for an exam. Yeah, we, we tell our participants in the workshops that they, they know their study style the best. And so, as you mentioned, Eli, some are auditory. Some need to read, you know, either on the screen or have the pages of the book in their hand. One, one thing that I've um, um, talked with some participants about is the, the apps in the app store. There are um, several 
exam prep applications, you know, that you could just be working through as you're getting your oil changed or waiting to pick up your kids in the pickup lane or, or whatever that looks like, where it's just a good refresher. And I found, um, I found that those can be helpful. Obviously those weren't around (laughs) when I took the exam, but that's something that I think is easy because I, um, I am, I I like to write out note cards and make flashcards. And so that's sort of a digital flashcard that I think has, has been helpful for some, um, more, more generally about third party um, products. You know, there's a lot out there and what I encourage my students, um, and participants is to check with those people in their circle of training and supervision that are trusted and ask those people, what did you use in the marketplace? You know, here, here are the books from the program that might be helpful, but what in the marketplace was helpful for you? And then make a decision. Is that something that I, you know, I'm willing to, to save up and splurge for? Some of those things can be a bit pricey. Um, but as you mentioned, Eli, there are, there, you know, there are some online modules you can purchase, things that you can do, um, you know, asynchronously on, on the computer. But really word of mouth, I found, is the best way for students and participants to figure out, is this legitimate? Is this, is this a good investment of my money? Because honestly, that's, that's how I view it. It is an investment. The exam, the materials, they are not inexpensive. (laughs) And so it's, it's a, it is a probably a decision-making process that students and participants have to enter into. And I think I would um, especially echo what Sarah said about knowing yourself when you're making those decisions about the type of study uh, material you might want to invest in, um, because we're all very different in terms of how we learn best. And so, you know, going to an in-person workshop where you're, you know, sitting and you're hearing a review of all of the, you know, major um, topics in the field might be what you need because you just, you need to hear that. You need to listen to it. Um, when I took it, again, I didn't, uh, we didn't have all the <laughs> online resources uh, way back then to, uh, to access and use, but um you know, I created my own study materials because for me, the process of synthesizing content um, is what helps me learn. And so I, I created my own study materials, uh, created, you know, model worksheets for myself um, that I use my textbooks uh, to, to create those for myself. Uh, and that was incredibly helpful for me. And that's what I did to study. I didn't spend any, a lot of time reading, well, other than <laughs> to create the, the worksheets, but uh, I didn't spend a lot of time reviewing those after I created them, but the process of creating them was what I needed to do. And so, um, you know, we just try to emphasize the students, you really have to think about how, when are you, take a solution-focused approach. When have you been most successful in the past um, with, you know, with exams? And, you know, use the same types of methods that, that you have previously. Now, AMFT, I think, has come a long way in the last couple of years as part of the reason I'm having the two of you on the podcast as far as helping student and preclinical fellow members prepare for this. So in case I don't know and I'm listening to this or a lot, a lot of young professionals will listen to this and necessarily aren't a member of AMFT and are trying to decide, uh, is this worth my time and my precious financial resources. How do you think AMFT uh, helps um, therapists in training prepare for this exam? 
Well, one of the big steps, as, as you've alluded to, Eli, is, is now offering this track as an option at the annual conference. And I'm terrible with years, but it's either our third or fourth year. I think it's our third year <laughs> to have offered this at the national conference. And, you know, we, we've been surprised um, at the response uh, to the track and lots of lots of eager um, students and those that are that are early on in the profession really hungry for the test prep really hungry for a review of you know the models the theories the supporting theories and also really hungry for the insights about the the structure of the exam uh, as we've already mentioned you know the the oh, debunking the misconceptions about the scoring and those types of things. And so I think that's been really beneficial move on the AMFT's part is to say, um, you know, we're, we're investing um, at the beginning of your career all the way, <laughs> all the way to the end, providing CEU opportunities, you know, the, the gamut of things that membership in AMFT provides. And so it's, it's nice actually to see, an emphasis on those that are students or the preclinical fellows. So those of uh, our listeners that might want to partake in this and meet you all personally at one of these trainings, uh, sometimes people think of um, a conference as, oh, an hour here or a two-hour workshop there. Talk to them specifically about what the MFT exam prep looks like at an AMFT national conference. Sure. Um, it is uh, the whole time. <laughs> No, generally speaking, our <laughs> workshops, <laughs> uh, our workshops run about, uh, 16 hours. Um, so when we do them on our own, we do two full days, um, at the conference. It looks a little different than that, obviously, because we want to provide, um, people with opportunities. You know, we want them to go to the, the plenaries and, you know, the networking events and those types of things. And so, we usually, um, you know, it's, it begins on Thursday. So it, it does begin at pre-conference. And I think in the past we've done like all day Thursday, which is like four hours Thursday morning, four hours thir- or two or three. So Thursday morning and afternoon, um, a couple hours on Friday morning and Friday afternoon, um, Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon. Typically, um, although it does sometimes vary depending on other commitments that Sarah and I might have, but generally speaking, we try to leave that Sunday um, free and not have uh, the exam prep track go into Sunday because we know a lot of people need to get their ethics CEUs and you know there's always uh, an ethics CEU on on Sunday morning, including Sarah and I. So um, we That's try right. not to we try not to go over into the the Sunday time slot. But um, but yeah, it, and I think it, it typically we're close to sixteen to, total sixteen hours of contact. Um, you know, during, during the, the conference, although it's split up into smaller chunks, which probably in some ways is, uh, better for, for learning anyway. Right. So if you are never been to a national conference and you are in this stage of your career where you're preparing for an exam, uh, it is a, it's not crammed into an hour or two. It is a, an intensive, uh, experience and, and done in a way that's kind of very organic, uh, and, uh, gets you the information you need as, as Sarah and Jamie are telling us here. So I can't, I can't say enough of that for our listeners that have, it's a great first uh, reason to go to a conference. The 2019 conference, uh, will be in, in Austin, Texas and a, a great place to visit as well. So, uh, that's another example of, 
AMFT listening to members and bringing this uh, preparation in-house. Um, I'd like you guys to spend uh, our remaining time, because you are the masters in this, really giving what you think are the best tips is, as far as preparing in every, any way you want to do that, then I'll let you all talk about your own um, uh, your own business and if people want to follow up with you all specifically how they can do that. But please, share us share with us any knowledge uh, or test-taking tips for our, our listeners. Yeah. Um, Sarah mentioned this briefly earlier, but I just want to emphasize it again. One of the, um, the test-taking tips we always give is that we encourage people to work through the exam relatively quickly the first time through um, to make sure that they get to all of the questions. Because like Sarah mentioned, you're not penalized if you respond to a question wrong. So you get points for what you answer correctly, but you're not penalized if you get something wrong. And for our listeners out there, you have four hours for 200 yes. questions, Four correct? hours for 200 questions. And so we say, work through it quickly. There are a couple of reasons. Number one, you want to make sure you answer everything. Uh, because even if you guess, you might guess right. Uh, and you don't want to miss out on the opportunity for that point. Um, the other thing that we both experience in taking the exam ourselves, and we've had other people share that they experienced as well, is that especially for people who have do struggle with test anxiety, if question number three on the exam is a really difficult question, and you get to question number three and you're like, I have no idea, I'm stuck, I don't know how to respond to this question, and you start to spin, um, and you start to kind of ruminate and your anxiety starts to, you know, get out of control and you get stuck in question number three, then that, you know, that anxiety just starts to build. And so we tell people, if you get to question number three and you're like, yeah, I'm not sure about this one, flag it, move on. Don't spend time ruminating over one difficult question early on in the exam because it can really bring your confidence down and increase your anxiety. Move on because, you know, questions number, you know, four through 50, you might be like, yeah, I know this one. And you might just be rocking right along. And when you get to those questions that you know the answer, that helps to increase your confidence and reduce your anxiety. So, you know, move quickly through the exam. Um, you know, flag questions you're not, you know, you're not sure about, um, you know, and, and move on because you might get stuck there. And we don't want uh, you know students to, to do that. And the other thing is that sometimes if you flag a question you're not sure about and you move on, there might be a question further on in the exam that might have a clue. Uh, it might contain some little bit of content or something that triggers, oh, wait a minute, now I remember what I couldn't remember for, you know, in a, in a question earlier. I know that happened to me when I took the exam. Um, and so that's one of the reasons we say work, you know, work relatively quickly. Don't get stuck. Don't spend a whole lot of time in any one question when you're going through the exam the first time. Flag those questions. Come back to them later. Eli, in addition to what Jamie said, um, and I'll reiterate, working through the AMFTRB uh, manual, getting you know acquainted with the domains, the knowledge statements, recognizing the gaps, but. More pragmatically, um, what I talk about in the workshops is about the actual day of testing. Um, when students uh, um, are 
signing up for the exam, they usually have to pick a window. There are usually two testing times offered in the day, one in the morning, one in the early afternoon. And I encourage um, our participants, you know, you know yourself and you know when you perform better. If you're a morning person, you like to get up and get at it. Maybe you want to test in the morning. If you're a slow starter, <laughs> takes you a little bit of time to get going. Maybe you want to test in the afternoon. So uh, this is not the time to be a hero and think, you know, I'm turning over a new leaf starting with the day of the exam. I, I wouldn't recommend that. I, w- I would stick with what works best for the for the person. I would also suggest knowing exactly where the testing center is located. In fact, maybe maybe driving out a day or two earlier, making sure there's parking, there's no construction. The last thing you want to do is, you know, get rattled as you're driving up <laughs> and not finding parking and you're realizing you're about to be late. There that that's that would be something that would be easy, easy to take control of. Um I would also recommend that um, those that are taking the test dress comfortably, and that that sounds sort of, <laughs> sort of sort of funny to think about. But you know, sometimes those testing centers can be cold, and so um, again, each person knows how they test uh, in their most optimal conditions. So maybe maybe you know a sweater or or layering something on. Um, there are lockers at most of the testing sites where you can uh, people can secure belongings. Uh, and I would recommend, again, everyone knows herself, if you need a snack, uh, once the clock begins, once the test begins, it doesn't stop. But if you were, you know, um, kind of fading and needed a little snack, maybe you wanted to step out and have a bite of granola bar or something else that you brought with you, that's, that's great. Um, I would also say to figure out how to get in the zone and stay there. Sometimes there are distractions. Sometimes there are things that happen in the testing center that are outside of your control. Uh, I think Jamie tells a story of the computers being down. Jamie, you can jump in in a second and refresh me on, on the day of her test. So, you know, you're in the testing zone and then you've got to deal with these contextual issues. I, I often tell the story that in... Uh, the day that I was testing, that someone else was at the testing center testing for their medical boards, and they had smuggled in a textbook, and they were cheating on their medical boards. And so, you know, there was kind of a, a ruckus as that person was being escorted out. Meanwhile, I'm looking at the time and realizing, okay, I've got a time test. I need to, st- you know, get in the zone. So being aware that things like that may happen and that our ability to be flexible and adapt to those situations probably makes for, um, you know, a more successful uh, testing experience. Yeah, absolutely. What happened in mine, Sarah mentioned, I, I um, arrived and I was to take it in the morning and the computers were down. And so we all had to sit in the little lobby <laughs> of the testing center and it took about two hours um, for them to get the computers back up. So, um, you know, those things happen. And, you know, for me, it's like, okay, now is the time to breathe <laughs> deeply, um, I didn't have a cell phone, a smartphone, so I couldn't even like distract myself with Instagram <laughs> or something. Um, but, um, you know, you just have to be prepared for kind of those unexpected things to happen and know what your coping strategies are uh, for dealing with those. Right. I, I love all of those tips. And one that might seem like a given that I'll add to that is I like the example of taking not just a practice test, but taking a practice test under game conditions, as you all said, so you know how to get in that flow. You know, you, you, you understand the, um, how to react in that setting. Um, so 
most people, if, if they don't know, some some people who listen to this have taken the test before and they were not successful. What words of encouragement would you have for therapists that have been out there and this is really the last hurdle they can't get over? They have not. They have taken it and they have been unsuccessful because I want to be hopeful to those people listening out there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think first, I one of the first thing I, things I would say is that they're not alone. Um, and so, like you said, Eli, it doesn't necessarily reflect on their knowledge or their their clinical skill if if they don't pass it the first time they take it. There are a lot of people who don't pass this exam the first the first time they take it, um, and and so you know they, there's nothing to be ashamed about. I, I think is is what I would say. And um, you know, heaping heaping shame on yourself doesn't doesn't help you be more successful in the future. So. And, and I think that's one of the things we see in our workshop is there's this solidarity that forms between uh, between the participants. They're like, oh, you know, you didn't pass. I didn't pass either. How many points did you miss it by? And so it's kind of like, okay, I, you know, I'm not alone here. I'm not the only one who hasn't been successful the first time I took this exam. I mean, we've seen that most, um, you know, most of the students that we've worked with uh, were able to be successful, um, you know, after you know, on, on their, on their second try. Um, and you know, oftentimes it is just by a, a point or two. And while that can be discouraging at the same time, what it says is that you're close. <laughs> um, and you probably do know your stuff. Uh, there just may have been a question or two that was particularly tricky for you, uh, on the exam you got. And, um, and, and you can be successful again. Most of the people that Sarah and I have worked with have been successful um, their second time after they maybe have just taken it more seriously um, and spent some more time studying and uh, investing in that time. I do think um, even for, for people that have not been successful the first time around, it doesn't hurt to go back and take another practice exam um, or, you know, search out new materials. At this point, you know, they would have a score or they would have the report um, that would let them know what of the domains, you know, they were maybe needed, needed some growth areas in. And so I would recommend digging back into the literature, digging back into a chapter or two about vicarious trauma or general systems theory, whatever it may be. Um, also, I, I do think, you know, there is something to be learned from, okay, I've taken it once. I know the structure. I know, I know the general scene. I know the types of questions that they're going to ask. And as, as Jamie mentioned, I only missed it by a couple. Like, I'm nearly there. And so take heart um, because it, it is something that can be accomplished. And um, it's, it's worth the hard work. It's worth the hard work in the end. Uh, great advice. Um, so Sarah and Jamie are just as helpfully face to face as they are virtually here on the podcast. So tell them, tell our listeners if they want to get in contact with you, how they can do that. And in addition to coming to a national conference and seeing you giving the intensive MFT exam prep, um, feel free to mention any of the other services that the two of you guys provide uh, for those interested in preparing for the exam. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anyone can go to our website, which is www.mftexammaster.net. And, um, you know, we have, you know, a yeah, you know, they can send us an email or a message uh, through our website by filling out you know the little uh, form on there, the email form, if they have questions or are interested in you know other 
you know, materials or whatever that we that we may offer through our business. And also our website contains information about um, any upcoming workshops that we might be offering or, you know, if they want to purchase the glossary that Sarah and I have put together or, you know, it's another study material that, that we might have available on there. Um, so, yeah, we would just in, you know, invite students to take a look at our website and send us a message if they have specific questions. And like I said, we, you know, we're both faculty members. We want people to succeed. We want our uh, profession to continue to grow. And so even if students, I get emails from students, you know, on a regular basis, like, you know, I can't afford, um, you know, to, to buy, you know, you know, to attend a training, to attend a workshop or uh, to spend a lot of money on third party materials. What textbooks do you recommend? And I'm always, you know, we're both always willing to say, here are the books. Um, that we think that you already have in your library that would be most helpful to you. This is what we would recommend that you, you know, that you study. So, you know, we, we're just, we're, we're ha- you know, we're happy to help and, and we want, um, we want people to be successful and, th- and that's our, you know, main, main mission, I think. I can't thank you guys enough for being part of the podcast and I appreciate all that you do, uh, for the profession and for the AMFT. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eli. We're, thank we're you, happy Eli. to be a part of it. Thanks for extending the invitation to us. Great information. Thank you again so much, Jamie and Sarah. You heard mentioned several times the AMFTRB that stands or the Association of Marital and Family Therapy Regulatory Boards. Go to amftrb.org to find out everything you need to know about the candidates and licenses, including the handy 2020 handbook to prepare for the exam, up to date with the latest uh, test items, domains, testing windows, everything that we mentioned in the podcast. Again, amftrb.org. So this brings to a close not only this installment of the AMFT podcast, but our first season, 2019. We're going to take a little four-week hiatus so you can enjoy the festive holiday season. And we're going to be back in 2020 with our second season with some amazing guests. And I'll just give you a preview right now. In addition to talking about the latest topics affecting our clinical practice in the world of systemic individual couple and family therapy, we have industry leaders we're going to bring to people in 2020 like John and Julie Gottman, a great interview, Dick Schwartz, Chloe Madonis, among others. I cannot wait to be back with you. Those who know me know that I am passionate about the profession of marriage and family therapy, all things MFT. And I want to thank the AMFT for giving me a chance to to do what I love to do. Um, I consider it probably the greatest form of service to the profession. I've had so much fun, and I cannot wait to be back for our second season in 2020. As always, this show thrives on listener support and feedback from you. Best way to do that is drop AMFT line. Send them an email, communications at amft.org. You can reach me, info at Eli Karam. That's E L I K A R A M dot com. Follow the conversation on Twitter as always. Hashtag AMFT podcast. Hashtag stay systemic. And you can follow me at Dr. Eli Live. And the 
AMFT's handle. The handle is simply at the AAMFT. Please like, download, wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm partial to Apple Podcast, but you can also go to Google Play, Stitcher, and please leave us a review on your star rating. It helps us rise through the ranks of the Mental Health Podcast. Please have a very blessed holiday season and a wonderful new year. And as always, until next year, my friends, stay systemic.